0: listening to that old Preach, we have another interview lined up for you guys today. I think it's one uh, that you'll find very interesting. We have on our show Dr. Gerald McDermott. Dr. McDermott uh, is a retired professor from Beeson Divinity School, and uh, he was the Anglican professor of divinity there. He has taught extensively in the areas of history and doctrine, world religions, Anglican studies, Jonathan Edwards, and the topic that we're going to talk about today, Israel. Um, He's written three books on a theology of understanding Israel as it relates to the scriptures and to the biblical story, and a vast uh, plethora of articles as well, and it's a topic that uh, I'm excited to dive into. So, Jerry, thank you for joining us on the show today.
1: It's my pleasure and privilege, Brian.
0: So, I first encountered your work because of uh, at, at least with regard to Israel, because of a series of articles that you or dialogue you participated in on Theopolis. And it was titled, Provocatively Rethinking Israel. And that got me really interested because uh, my wife and I had just traveled to Israel uh, earlier this year and gained a great appreciation for the Jewish roots of Christianity. And, and so those articles were very helpful to read. And uh, I just want to know from your own life, What got you interested in studying Israel as it relates to the Bible and to theology and all those types of things?
1: Well, I was leading a church tour of Israel about 20, 25 years ago, and I thought I knew everything I needed to know about the relationship between the church and Israel. I followed essentially the teachings that I had been a scholar of and then became a friend of Tom Wright, Uh, you know, know, the great bishop, uh, now retired, N.T. Wright. Yeah. And I I had this very humble guide who was working on his Ph.D. at Hebrew University. Uh, And at the end of of most of the spiels that I would give at each one of the biblical sites as we were traveling around Israel, he would take me aside privately and say, Jerry, uh, have you read Sudden Such? I'd say, no, I never heard of that scholar. Have you read this other book? No, I've never heard of this other book. And his point was that what I had just been telling the people was wrong. But he would never correct me in public. And I started reading those books when I got home, which led me to other books. And I started to see that I was a blind man when it came to the subject of Israel and the church and Jesus.
0: That's fascinating. I remember... um... For me, I I had to teach through Romans nine through eleven, and I was at eleven, and I just did not know what to make of the passage, uh, with regard to enemies. They, meaning Israel, they are enemies with regard to the gospel, but with regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And I'm like, oh man, that's that's not talking about spiritual, you know, Israel or anything or the church. That's he's talking about. Israelites and I would scour commentaries and even NT Wright, I would read his stuff and I'd be like, Man, like I don't really understand what you're saying. <laughs> I don't really understand how uh, you're putting this together. And he's a brilliant man. And but uh, so you know, I that, that that's a that's a fascinating experience that you had. Um you mentioned in some of your writings this idea of this phrase supersessionism. Yes. And how would you describe what that is? And how that played into your thinking, maybe up until that point.
1: Well, I was a supersessionist up until that point. Now, what's supersessionism? Well, it has two parts the people and the land. And on the people, it goes like this uh, God made an eternal covenant with the Jewish people, starting with Abraham. But then in 30 AD, when Jesus rose from the dead, and it was clear that the majority of Jews, the vast, vast majority of Jews, rejected him as Messiah. He transferred that covenant that he had made with the Jewish people to the now becoming almost entire, you know, largely Gentile church. Transferred all those promises and the whole covenant. Now, this is also called replacement theology. So the, um, the Jewish people were superseded in God's affections by the Gentile people of the church. So that's the people. And then there's also the land uh, that in all the Old Testament history, the center of the world is the land of Israel. And God has made all sorts of promises about that land, that he was giving that land to the Jewish people. He started saying that to Abraham and he continued saying that all through the Old Testament. But then with Jesus, God moved from a local fixation on this tiny little strip of land on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, the size of New Jersey, to the whole world and all the peoples of the world. God realized it it was sort of uh, parochial. It was sort of narrow to simply focus on this little land. He should uh, change his focus. He should supersede his earlier narrow focus on this little tiny land with the now global focus on all the lands of the world. Uh, so that's the second part of supersessionism from the land of Israel to all the lands of the whole world. Gotcha. And that God, and that God essentially uh, <clears throat> has changed changed his promises, has changed his his affections and his focus.
0: Now, this seems to be a very dominant view in church history, at least it seems like it. I mean, I feel like a lot of the reformers held something like this position and even I'm not sure what the Catholic position would be. But what is the witness of the tradition and, and why? Why did this become a dominant view, in your opinion?
1: Uh, well, let me see. You're asking two questions. Um, uh, essentially, what um, why this became the dominant view? Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's just one question.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's essentially your only the question, question yeah.
1: at this point. Uh, why did this become so dominant? For two reasons, I'd say. <clears throat> Number one, because the new leaders of the church after the second century became increasingly Gentile and not Jewish, and they lost touch with the Jewish um, roots of the Christian faith. Number two, in the fourth century with Constantine, um, the church leadership again, was um, dominated by gentiles almost entirely gentiles who who had completely lost touch with the jewish roots of the faith and now they had the arm of the state to enforce it and starting in the fourth century they told jews who believed in jesus messiah and who also had been raised that god gave them the law and the law was god's eternal covenant with them and now they realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, and so they wanted to keep observing, to keep obeying the law, the Jewish law, as God had given it to them, but but recognizing that Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of this law, and they were told by the church starting in the fourth century that if they if they lived as Jews and started to keep the Jewish requirements of Jewish law, They would be be excommunicated from the church, and they might even be harmed physically, might even be killed. And so many of them said, Well, I have to choose between what I have been taught in the covenant that God gave us and this new teaching, and I have to be faithful to God, and therefore I cannot become a member of this church. So the long arm of the law, the power of the state, Uh, 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 It was enforced by armies and the sword. Made this dominant, Uh, but. It cracks in it started to appear major cracks in this dominant tradition started to appear in the 16th century. The first three centuries of the history of Christianity were in much greater flux on on this question of the relationship um, between Israel and the church. But then in the 16th century. Everything opened up because the pietists on the continent, Protestant, of course, and the um, uh, Puritans uh, over on England uh, on 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 the island of England mm. um, rejected Calvinisms uh, uh, well, Puritans who were Calvinists, uh, they rejected Calvin's uh, supersessionism. And the Pietists rejected Luther who were primarily Lutherans rejected Luther's supersessionism. And uh, they were using the Reformations hermeneutic of starting with the plain sense of the scripture. And and they started saying, you know, you know, if you look at the plain sense of the scripture, what's on the surface of the text, you can't transfer all these Old Testament promises to the Gentile church. It just doesn't make sense of the plain sense of the scripture uh and then the puritans um in the colonies uh, um started to say the same thing and started writing seriously about in the 17th century and started saying hey it seems to us that uh god's promises to the jews are still intact in fact we believe that even though the jews are spread all over the world now and are not in control of their land at all the ottoman Muslims are, but nevertheless, we believe that someday God's going to bring them back to the land, and he's going to restore the nation of Israel. Now, there's no indication in natural history right now in the 17th century there's any chance of that, but the Bible promises it. And this was 17th century. You know, this is increased matter in Boston, cotton Mather in Boston, saying things like this, or, or excuse me, John Cotton. So. And in the 18th century, you have, you know, the great Dutch theologian, Brockel, and you have Jonathan Edwards, who becomes a Christian Zionist. And he too says, even though it looks hopeless, someday the Jews, are, God's gonna bring the Jews back to the land and Israel will be restored. So um, uh, cracks, at, and then in 1965, is Nostra etate and the Roman Catholic Church. And it was largely stimulated by the Holocaust. Uh, And the terrible, terrible, deep self-criticism, self-reflection that came upon Christian Bible scholars and Christian theologians all over the world, Protestant, Catholic, asking themselves, how could this have happened in the most Christianized country in history, Germany? Catholics in the South and Protestants, of the, you know, you know, Lutherans in the North. How could this have happened? And the Catholic Church did a deep searching and came up with Nostra Aetate, a, a profound document in Vatican II, 1965. And it renounced the first part of supersessionism officially and formally, a uh, part of the people. And it said we were wrong. We, the Catholic Church, have been wrong for centuries and centuries to regard all Jews as Christ killers. We were wrong to have said for centuries and centuries that God ended his covenant with the Jewish people. We are now saying officially that God's covenant, his eternal covenant with the Jewish people is eternal and still in place. And it was not broken in 30 A.D. And now the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the last few years is doing intensive uh, work on the second part of supersessionism, the land. And this great scholar, this great English Catholic theologian named Gavin DaCosta, uh, 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 has put out a book with Oxford University Press and now is leading discussions amongst Catholics, promoting what's called minimal Catholic Zionism. That the land is theologically significant. That's the second part of supersessionism that we have to correct.
0: So, what were some of the things after your trip to Israel? Like you had mentioned in your article, Rethinking Israel, that you had been trained to overlook certain things in the scriptures. And you mentioned the reformers, one of their, or rather, the Puritans who were the you called, I think you called them Zionist Puritans or reform or something like that. That they, Zionists, essentially, yeah, yeah. yeah, that they were that there were people who wanted to go back to the sources and they wanted to take the plain sense. And when they did take the plain sense, new vistas opened up in terms of understanding yes. Israel. What was yes. that like for you as you were rereading the Bible through this new lens?
1: Well, like you, I was arrested by Romans 11. I had never um seen it. I'd I'd read it probably. Scores hundreds of times. I mean, I started reading the Greek New Testament um, in uh, college uh, because I learned uh, classical Greek in high school. Uh, You know, I was raised a Roman Catholic. We went to a Jesuit high school in New York City, and I was a Greek major because I was a stutterer and I couldn't do a modern science because of lousy science uh, background, and I couldn't do the modern language track because I couldn't talk. And the only thing that was left was Greek. And I was thrilled. I was thrilled it was a dead language. So I took Greek and learned classical Greek in high school. And, and uh, then in college, uh, I started reading uh, New Testament Greek uh, after a conversion experience. And despite all the readings of, of Romans, I had never seen the plain sense of Romans 11, 28 and 29, where Paul says, even those who don't accept Jesus are still beloved because of the fathers, the very thing that arrested you, Brian, and their gifts and calling are irrevocable. That is cannot be evoked. Now, I didn't know them, but I have since come to learn that the number one thing that Jews meant by gifts in the first century was the gift of the land. Uh, You see this in Philo, for example, the great Contemporary of the Apostle Paul, the great Jewish philosopher, the land is the number one gift and all the Jews just assumed it. They don't even have to, you know, talk about it because the Jews were living in the land. They weren't controlling the land. The Romans were controlling the land, but they were living in the land Uh, and calling and the gifts and calling Paul says are irrevocable. Now, calling, you know, we Christians, particularly reformed Christians formed by Calvin. And Calvin's sense of calling, you know, we're, we're uh, um, we are called and then justified, called and given the gift of special revelation to see Jesus as the Messiah. And then, you know, some Calvinists and Lutherans particularly talk about our calling to our profession in life. Um, but calling for Jews meant God's calling of the Jewish people to be his chosen people. That's what Paul means here. Their their calling is irrevocable. They're still the chosen people. And I had never seen that. And and then Jesus, you know, he's pretty important to the New Testament, I would say. Uh, In Matthew 5, verse 17, these words I had hundreds of times skipped over and never really saw, just jumped out of me. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, Jesus says. And the word for fulfill there is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which means give a proper interpretation of. Now, you know, the rabbis had taught. That when the Messiah comes and they were teaching this in the intertestamental period. That the Messiah will give us his Torah. That is his interpretation of Torah. And that's what Paul means, by the way, in 1st Corinthians 9, where he talked about the law of Christ. Is the Torah of the Messiah? Um uh, his messianic view of Torah. So so Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, and so many Calvinists really treat the um uh um Jesus as having come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now the Calvinists are not bad, as you know as bad as Lutherans because for, for Lutherans, it's much more ra- radical law and gospel. And gospel is treated as the opposite of the law. And, you know, Calvin is no better. But still, they they typically follow Calvin, who, who, who is a radical supersessionist. Uh, and they treat the law as if, yes, we, we you know, it still has some normative value in the, in the Christian's life. Calvin was right about that. But in terms of Jewish law, And the Jewish inheritance, um, uh, most Calvinists read those words as if Jesus has come to apostle all the prophets. And really, uh, so, but then Jesus goes on to say, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom. Now, what are the least of these commandments? Now, uh, by the way, notice that suggests a very unevangelical idea that some, some commandments are greater than other commandments. And, and this is very Jewish, by the way, the rabbis, uh, distinguish the commandments between the heavy commandments and the light commandments. Sins against the light commandments were not as serious as sins against the heavy commandments. So that's what Jesus is talking about here when 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 he talks about the least of these commandments. Now, what would be the least of these commandments? Well, here most Christians would agree with most Jews, who would say that what what we Christians call the ceremonial commandments in the most hated book in the Old Testament by Christians, Leviticus, are probably. What Jesus means by the least of these commandments, but notice what Jesus is sa- says here, not is suggesting, but actually says directly, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. And let's say it's among the ceremonial commandments of Leviticus will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Now, um, uh, that's a pretty serious thing for Jesus to say, but most of us just run right over that. What is Jesus saying here? Well, that even the, the ceremonial commandments now, and now, by the way, that's a false distinction for Jews, all the laws of the law, there is no ceremonial and civil and moral. Uh, uh, none of those are proper distinctions for Jews, and I think they also should not be for us, but we still interpret them messianically. Um and, and not the same way we Gentiles would not interpret them the same way that Messianic Jews would, for example. Um, many messianic Jews, not all. So, you know, you know, something that uh is mentioned in Tanakh, and in 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 Leviticus, for example, um and all 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 over the Old Testament is the promise of the land. Most Christians have no idea that the land promise is repeated 1,000 times in the Old Testament. So uh, these are some of the things, Brian, that I went back to and 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 uh, was arrested by.
0: How, how, what kind of a hermeneutical lens do we need to have over the Old Testament when we think about how Gentiles and Jews understand what applies to them what doesn't?
1: But I think, you know we need to talk about a hermeneutical lens. First, we have to see some facts which will then change our hermeneutical lens, or make us mm-hmm. realize that, our, that that our existing, or at least our, our previous hermeneutical lens is faulty. It'll at least make us open to a new set of hermeneutical lenses. So you know, so among those facts, here's, here's one. And this is one that I saw fairly early on after, you know, you know, being woken up from my dogmatic slumbers, as Kant would put it, on Israel. Part of the traditional teaching of supersessionism that most of us were raised by in the church is that the church is the new Israel. The New Testament never says that. The word Israel. Is used in the New Testament seventy-seven times. I've counted them, and every one of those seventy-seven times, it refers to either the the Jewish people, that land the size of New Jersey, or the polity of the Jewish people. Now, um, people, you know, supersessionists will say, "Yeah, but in Galatians six sixteen, where Paul talks about the Israel of God." there, we have the church as the new Israel. And if you look at it carefully, and I've, I've written about this both in my book called Israel Matters, and and in uh, um, uh, my, my newest book on Israel called um, uh, um, Jewish Roots of Christianity, or or actually, the first word is Understanding Jewish Roots of Christianity, which Brian, I think you said that you've looked at
0: yeah,
1: um, Paul says for all who walk by this rule, uh, um, and he's talking about the new creation. That circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter in comparison to the new creation. You know, the circumcised Jews, the uncircumcised Gentiles, are all justified by the same Jewish Messiah, and get to live in and to experience and participate in the new creation. And then he says, for all who walk by this rule, and by the way, this is in Galatians. Key to understanding Galatians, on this question of Israel and the church, is to realize as scholars have argued, rightly, that either all the church in Galatia was Gentile or the vast, vast majority of the church in Gentile, in Galatia was Gentile. So that's Paul's audience. It's a Gentile audience. It's not a Jewish audience. For all who walk by this rule, he's speaking to Gentiles, these Gentile Christians, for all who walk by this rule of the new creation. So all you Gentiles who understand that we are now living in a new creation, that that this is the bottom line. Peace and mercy be upon them. So upon you Gentiles. And upon, now notice the word and, et, you know, it's right there in the Greek. Kai, Kai, Kai. And upon the Israel of God. So he's talking about a different group here. And the Israel of God is probably Messianic Jews. That's the Israel of God. I mean, he says in Romans 9 uh, not all who are from Israel are, are of Israel. So he's distinguishing Messianic Jews, those, those who see Jesus in the Messiah, which, by the way, in the first century probably uh, uh, numbered well over 100,000 around the empire uh we should dismiss from our minds the idea false idea that 99.9 percent of the Jews in the first century rejected Jesus as Messiah no in acts 21 Paul tells us that um uh no Luke Luke tells us, and he puts these words in in, in the mouth of James, you know, the Jewish leader of the church in Jerusalem, myriades, just here in Jerusalem, are zealous for the law and believe in Jesus as Messiah. Now, what's one myriad? Now, myriades is plural. What's one myriad? 10,000. So a minimum of 20,000. It's not just one 10,000, but ten thousands. a minimum of 20,000 Jews just in Jerusalem. Now, this was um, maybe 56, 57 AD. Just by that time, just in Jerusalem, at least 20,000 Jews were Messianic Jews. Now, we know from Acts of the Apostles that all over the empire, there were huge communities of Messianic Jews. So. Um, the Israel of God is considerable in the first century. It, it's uh, it's not a majority of Jews. It still doesn't reach fifty percent, but we're probably talking well over a hundred thousand, perhaps hundreds of thousands around the empire of messianic Jews. So, so that's the first fact to see that that for the New Testament, the church is not the new Israel, and um, you know. Secondly. You know, second fact to see. And once we see these facts, then as I said, Brian, we start to be open to looking for at least a new hermeneutic because we realize our old hermeneutic does not cover these facts, does not explain these facts. And in fact, these facts blows our old her- should blow our old hermeneutic out of the water. And we ought to be looking for a new one. Uh, so the second one is is another wake-up call that I had. Uh, you know, about this time from this same guide, we were standing on the second century um, 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 synagogue at Capernaum, where you probably were a few weeks ago. Um, and he was pointing out to us Matthew 23 2. Now, mm-hmm. this is the beginning of Matthew 23, this long excoriation of the Pharisees. And he And he pointed out that Jesus says in verse 2, practice and protect two different Greek verbs that are the translation of two different Hebrew words, which are very common concerning the law in the Old Testament to do the law and guard the law, protect the law. Um, But Jesus says here, and he's referring to the Pharisees, practice and protect everything the Pharisees tell you. Now my eyes just about popped out of my eye sockets. What? You know, I've been reading the Greek New Testament. Yeah, by that time for about three decades, and I've never seen that. What Jesus is telling his disciples, not only to practice, but to, to protect and the idea here is the Jewish idea of put a fence around. I, I, I'm all that the Pharisees teach. Now, don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. He, and he goes on to explain their hypocrisy. But at the beginning, he says he he praises the Pharisees' teachings. I just that just blew my mind. I had never seen that. And then later, um, um, Jesus in in that same chapter, who condemns. The, the Sadduceean leadership of the temple. wasn't the Pharisees who led the temple, it was the Sadducees, you know, and you know, they didn't believe in angels or life after death, and so that's why they were Sadducee. So let, down later in that chapter 23, Jesus refers to the temple and he says, God dwells in the temple. Whoa, I'd never seen that before either. God still even though the temple is led by a corrupt establishment that would go on to crucify it, Jesus still says that God dwells in the temple. So once we see a few of these facts and there are many more, Brian, we should be open to the to the possibility that our, our existing or our past hermeneutic for reading the Old Testament, the relationship between old and new and Jesus and Judaism and Paul and Jewish law, uh, maybe we don't have the right hermeneutic, and maybe we ought to be in search for a better one.
0: This is uh, fascinating because oftentimes we think the Pharisees, their problem was they cared about the law too much and that they were in charge of the temple. And you're saying, no, the issue was that they weren't doing the law they claimed to love, and they didn't control the temple. They oh, yeah. weren't in control of the temple. Also that, because I know N.T. Wright talks about, you know, Israel's still in exile because the spirit never came back to the temple, but you're saying that Jesus is saying that God still dwells in the Sadducee ruled temple. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's fast. I- I'm curious about the everlasting covenant. I want to come back to what you were just talking about, but you yeah. mentioned that before yeah. and I've heard about, you know, people wanting to avoid a dual covenant type thing, or or when we say the everlasting covenant, if that means the land, are we talking about the covenant uh, with uh, it God?
1: It means the people, the, the, the people and the land, not just the land.
0: Right, and so it, the everlasting covenant, is that, the are we talking about like the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant at no, Sinai Abrahamic. with Israel?
1: No, no, the Abrahamic covenant where God tells Abraham, he gives him two promises. He says, I will be the God for you and your, well, first, I'm going to give you sons. Right. And at the time, it looked impossible, and it kept looking impossible for for a few decades after that. Um, But I'm going to give you sons, a son and sons, um, and I'm going to be God to you and your sons and all your progeny forever. Uh, And then the second part is, I'm going to give you a land. So. So back to what I think you're asking, the eternality of the covenant, God's covenant with the Jewish people. Um, in in Jeremiah chapter 31, which is the one that actually supersession is typically turned to as a proof text for the new covenant being radically different from the first covenant with the Jewish people. And you know, the new covenant is is with the church, and the old covenant is only with the Jewish people, and God has moved from one, from, from, from the latter to the former, you know, the new covenant with the Gentile church. In that same chapter, Jeremiah 31, um, God says, I am gonna keep my covenant with this nation, this whole people, as long as the sun and stars and moon are in the sky. And you know, Right right now, I'm in Virginia and the sun's out Uh, and the sun is definitely still in the sky. And I and I have great confidence that in a few hours, uh, if the clouds are not there, that I'm going to see stars in the sky and the moon in the sky. So, um, you know, that's the other thing, Brian, is that God keeps his promises. And we who have been educated in in the reformed faith. Um, What we're essentially saying, if we continue to be supersessionists, is that God does not keep his promises. God made eternal promises to the Jewish people and supersessionism says he broke those promises. And if God can break his promises to the Jews, well, then God can break his promises to Gentiles too. And that's something that we ought to be afraid of.
0: So, so there's a new covenant. Maybe maybe this kind of goes to the question of how do we understand things like Ephesians 2 about Gentiles grafted into the commonwealth and heirs of the promise or Romans 4 when Abraham is supposed to be father of the circumcised uncircumcised and then he talks about heir of, being heir of the whole world and then um, like 1 Peter applying chosen race, holy nation to a largely Gentile church. These are the things that Because I I see all the things you're seeing, and then I see those, and I just get confused.
1: (laughs) Well, let's let's take them one at a time. Ephesians two.
0: Yeah,
1: Paul's talking about one new man that is the body of the Messiah, joining Jews and Gentiles who remain as Jews and Gentiles, just as men and women remain as men and women, but 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 are well, married couple uh, is one. In all sorts of ways, um, spiritually and sexually, um, and yet they still are men, men and women, uh, men and women in Christ are justified equally by the Jewish Messiah by by you know by becoming one with the Jewish Messiah by faith and baptism, but they but they still remain as as men and women, Jews and Gentiles. Are joined into one church by the Jewish Messiah, uh, have fellowship with one another, uh, and they are one new man, Christ, Christ body. That's what Paul's referring to. But they're still Jews and Gentiles, distinguished as Jews and Gentiles, all through the book of Revelation. It's yes, you know, talking about the end times and 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 the eschaton and throughout the book of Revelation, Jews and Gentiles continue to be distinguished. Um, They uh, so that's Ephesians two, Um, you know, and and Paul. Keeps distinguishing, you know, after this passage in Ephesians two, when you look just a few verses down into Ephesians three, he continues to distinguish Jews and Gentiles. Uh, For this reason, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He continues to distinguish them as Gentiles as opposed to Jews. Um, now, First Peter, you know, there's a major uh, hermeneutical problem with most scholarly interpretations of First Peter and most sermons on First Peter by most pastors, but I'm sure you don't make this mistake.
0: I think I literally might have made this mistake. Yeah. Yeah. A few weeks ago, depending on what you're about to say. so go ahead,
1: <laughs> first Peter is I would argue, and many other scholars uh, you know would argue, particularly post supersessionist scholars who have had this wake-up call as I have, uh, is primarily addressed to Jewish believers. Look, in chapter one, verse one, the very first verse in first Peter, uh, you know Peter says, "I am talking to you exiles of the dispersion." Now the Gentiles were never dispersed. These are Jews. The, the Jewish diaspora—that's that's that—that's that—that's that, that's part of the common Jewish vocabulary in the first century. We're in the diaspora, uh, you know. And then later in in chapter two, verse twelve, he says, "Keep your conduct among the what the the uh, 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 well he calls them the Gentiles." Right. He's speaking to Jews. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, uh, just a few verses before that in chapter two, he says, So you're a chosen race or royal priesthood. Now, all Jews knew that. Um, this applies, first of all, to Jews and especially to Messianic Jews now. Uh, but even if a minority of Peter's uh, readers are Gentiles and they might have been you know in, in in most of your Messianic communities you had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles Some were a majority of, of Jews as it seems to be in in Peter's audience uh, uh, but but often a minority of um, of Gentiles because you know Gentiles over the all over the Roman Empire were attracted to Judaism. They recognize it immediately when they went to a synagogue on Saturday morning. Uh, it's superiority to everything they had grown up with in Greco-Roman religion, morally, spiritually, in terms of beauty. So even if a minority of uh, Peter's re- readers are Gentiles, the whole Christian people are a chosen people, not by superseding the Jews, but by being joined. To the Jewish people by oneness with the Jewish Messiah. Now, now you also mentioned Romans four. That often well,
0: can, can I ask you something about? So, yeah. if I just sure. want to make sure, with First Peter, you're saying those Israel terms can apply to Gentiles, but not because they become the new Israel, but because they're gra- they are grafted, grafted in, in
1: to the olive tree of Israel. Yes, and, and so you know, you know, somebody famous once said. Salvation is from the Jews. Yeah, and so so the only way you're going to get saved, according to this, you know, prophet and I'd call him Messiah. Yeah, his name is also Jesus. Yeah, is by becoming um, part of Israel. But Paul says in Romans 11, Gentiles are grafted in. That they, they are not the olive tree. They're they they are wild branches. So, so now uh, Romans 4, um, you know, the verse you mentioned um, where Paul, you know, and it's a favorite text for supersessions.
0: Well, well, can I ask yeah. something again about First Peter? Because oh, he does talk yeah. about not living like the Gentiles do, which I don't, yeah. I mean, would Jews have lived like Gentiles? And he also talks about, don't you know, turning away yeah. from Dude, the few Jews. ways of your forefathers, which sounds like. He was talking about Gentiles with the things that he that he lists. Well,
1: well, first of all, Jews when when they live amongst Gentiles, and you see this all through the Old Testament, are always tempted to live like the Gentiles. Sure. But within Jewish communities, the Gentile sins are known as Gentile sins, particularly those involving sexuality, because Jews just didn't go there typically, and particularly after the uh, 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 return from exile in Babylon. Um, But, you know, some of Peter's audience might have been Gentile, but they were clearly a minority because, you know, there are these very direct signs scattered throughout the letter that he's speaking primarily to Jew, to to a Messianic Jewish community.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And so the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that would still be talking about Jewish forefathers? Like, because to me, that sounded like. The paganism that you came out of yeah, yeah. and uh well, I, well yeah
1: well he you know uh, uh uh he could be referring there and i would say probably is referring there uh to um uh the unfaithful jewish forefathers you know all the prophets talk about this and they distinguish between faithful jews and unfaithful jews and the prophets say the faithful Jews are a remnant so you know your unfaithful forefathers who who regularly um as we know from Tanakh the Old Testament regularly um, uh, rejected the God of Israel while going through the motions
0: so it depends really on who you think Peter first Peter was primarily reading to that seems to be a big uh...
1: i i i I, I I think that's big, and you know this thing about a world priesthood too. Remember this: that God told all of Israel that He was calling them to be a whole nation of priests. Now, what's a priest? A priest is someone who points, who um, points the world to the true God. You know, says that's the true God, not not this, yeah. not him, not her. But that's the true God, the true God of Israel. That's what a priest primarily does. He tells the world about God. He points the world to the true God. Now, God said, I'm calling you as a whole nation to be a nation of priests, a priestly nation. Now, at the same time, I'm calling up um, uh, some of your men to be priests, a, uh, a separate order of priests. And among those, and I'm also calling some of your men to be Levites, who have different responsibilities from those of priests. And I'm also calling from a your priests, you know, some of them to be chief priests. Now, now, the early church, I would argue, got its order of bishops, priests, and deacons, which are fully fleshed out in the second century already, from the a Jewish order. Of, of chief priests priests and Levites at the same time that the whole nation is called to be a you know a nation that points the world to the true God um uh, at the same time you, you have a special order of priests
0: so let's go to Romans 4 you were you were about to
1: yeah so talk Romans about 4 that. is a favorite proof text for um you know supersessionists who point to Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the You know, heir heir, heir of the world. Um, Paul is obviously, you know, himself transferring the covenant from the Jewish people to the Gentiles of the world church. No, no. Um, uh, This is simply Paul's way of. Of putting God's promise to Abraham in Genesis twelve that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all the families of the world, which Jews have always been. I mean, Jews have been this incredible light to the nations, as Isaiah says, for all their history, all through the Old Testament, and and all through the last two thousand years, and they still are today, in the modern Middle East, in today's Middle East, um, and you know, and and so. So supersessionists use this verse uh, 13 in chapter four Romans uh, to argue that Paul is he is rejecting the Judaism of his day and particularly Jewish law. Well, look at just a, f- a few paragraphs before that, uh, at the end of chapter three, uh, after talking about. You know, the righteousness of God that comes through faith in the Jewish Messiah. He says, do we then overthrow? Now, this is verse 31, the last verse of chapter three. Just a few paragraphs before this, this Romans 4.13. Do we then overthrow the law? And he means Torah by this faith in the Jewish Messiah. By no means. Uh, uh, No way, Jose. (laughs) On the contrary, we uphold the law. And then in chapter seven, um, verse 12. So the law, Torah is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now now that's verse 12 in chapter seven, verse 13. um, uh, um, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law. Then down in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. In verse 16, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good. So the law, he constantly, oh, oh and then in Romans 8, the next chapter. Uh, he says, God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Is Paul doing away with the law? No. Is he doing away with the Judaism of the first century for which the law was central? No. Now, of course he's reinterpreting the law by the advent of the Messiah, but he is not doing away with the law. And that interpretation of Romans 4.13 is made by Supersessionists as a so-called proof text to prove that Paul is doing away with Jewish law and the Judaism of his day.
0: So it would sort of be like certain things are fulfilled sacrifices. So it's not that the law is gone; said we have that perfect sacrifice. That's what Paul's saying. But supersessionists are saying the land promise is, I, I, I guess, um, superseded. Superseded, <laughs> or ex- yeah. So would you say that in in a sense, Christ being the perfect sacrifice supersedes the old? Covenant animal sacrifices, yes.
1: uh, he but you wouldn't apply them.
0: that to the land. That's the problem. People are taking that
1: well connection. Look, look, Brian. Even sacrifices. Let's go back to sacrifices. Sacrifices were still being performed in Paul's day, and in Acts twenty-one, when Paul is is down in Jerusalem explaining what, what he's been doing as a missionary to the Jerusalem Church to James and the elders. Uh, James says, you know, we got we've been hearing these bad things about you, Paul. That 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 when you're up in Syria and Turkey and Greece and, and in Rome, you have been telling the Jews there that they don't have to follow the law anymore. Now, now, is that true? No. No, now we know you've been telling us that's not true, but but look, do us a favor. Just to prove that's not true, to prove that you have not done away with Jewish law, uh, we want you to to uh, pay for the Naz- the temporary Nazarite vow of these four other guys. You and these four other guys uh, go through with that, and and so he says I'll be happy to do it, and he paid for it, and they went through with it. And guess what's part of the Nazarite temporary Nazarite vow? Animal sacrifices at the temple. Hmm. Paul paid for and participated in animal sacrifices at the temple. And this was, you know, at least 20 years after his conversion. So Paul still believes in sacrifices. Now, he also believed in the Old Testament sacrifices. Why? Because they point, they, they were pointing uh, forward to the perfect sacrifice. Um, They were types of the anti type of the perfect sacrifice of the Jewish Messiah. And the ones at the temple that continued to be um, performed, and that Paul himself paid for and participated in, pointed back to the, the perfect sacrifice, uh, the, the anti-type.
0: Well, how, so, how... Oh, go ahead.
1: So, you know, and, 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 um, well, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that um, before the end of the world, um, that the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple. So he's seeing the the temple at the end of the world. And he's going to proclaim that he's God. Okay. So he's anticipating a continuation of sacrifices. But all pointing retrospectively back to their their antitype, just as the Old Testament sacrifices pointed prospectively toward their
0: antitype. How does the destruction of the temple play into this? Because you can't do the Old Testament laws today. I mean, you don't have a temple. No, no, you can't do all of
1: them. And and that's why many Orthodox Jews and many ultra-Orthodox, I hope hope the, the, the Third Temple is built. But you know, rabbinic Jews ever since seventy A.D. have said the way that we Jews uh, do sacrifices today is 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 by good works and Torah study.
0: But that's still a change.
1: Oh, you of know. course, it's a change, and all and all Jews acknowledge that. But but God has always, as John Henry Newman wrote, God has always, um, you know, developed his doctrines over time and and, uh, and and the institutions of his way of dealing with people over time
0: how do we distinguish this from dispensationalism because what's fascinating to me about this conversation is when I learned kind of in the reform school it was always over and against dispensationalism those right
1: those crazy um, dispensationalists right
0: and but this seems to be a <laughs> A third way, a via media, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> it's between those. Where is, yes. what distinguishes what you're talking about yeah. from like a classic American dispensational kind of?
1: Yeah, three background. three things, Brian. Okay. First, in traditional dispensationalism, and I say traditional because there's things going on, say at Dallas um, Seminary now that uh, have put have tweaked traditional dispensationalism. But but according to to traditional dispensationalism, the church in Israel run on two sort of parallel tracks and they never. Uh, intersect, and I see that completely foreign to the, the story of history in Scripture. Second, uh, you know, dispensationalism you know, still today. Um, um, has all sorts of elaborate eschatologies full of date setting they know what's going to happen and when and we in what's in this movement called the new Christian Zionism we're we're pretty much agnostic on what's going to happen when and what happens first second and third I mean we just don't know uh and we don't claim to know uh third uh the rapture is integral to all dispensationalism, both uh, um, old and new, and most of us say there is no rapture that that that's an unbiblical um, doctrine.
0: Does this perspective tie you into particular eschatological view? I'm thinking about the millennium, though I don't know if that's an Anglican debate, but I think a lot of the evangelicals it's thinking about: Are we waiting for a temple to be rebuilt? Uh, is that going to happen in this millennium period? I mean, these are all types of things swirling around. Does this right. tie you into a particular eschatological perspective?
1: It does not. Um, it does say, though, that, you know, certain things about eschatology. It it it, it says, I, I'd say, number one, that God deals with nations um, um, that a, A, and God deals with the nations, he always has, and, and particularly he judges them, and he exercises real judgment in real history, as, as as scripture makes very clear, by the ways they've treated his chosen people. Wolfhard Pannenberg, one of the last great Lutheran theologians, there aren't many around today, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, except for Robert Benny, B-E-N-N-E, my friend and theological mentor to, to some degree. Um, Wolfhard Ponenberg wrote that the destruction of Germany during and after World War II, well, by the end of World War II, was God's punishment to the German people. Punishment of the German people because of the way they treated the Jews. Now, the second thing that I think we in the new Christian Zionist movement would say about eschatology that we can say, a lot we cannot say, is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament make clear that Jerusalem, which in both testaments stands for the whole nation, not just the city plays a signal role in the end of the world and the second coming. Um, Jerusalem's all over the book of Revelation, despite the claims of supersessionists that, that from here on out, Jerusalem has no, theolo- from, since, since 30 AD, Jerusalem has, has no theological significance anymore, uh, except in a hyper, hyper spiritualized symbolic way. No, I think the authors of, of both the old New, uh of uh, of even the New Testament uh, when they use the word Jerusalem, they use it in a a very um, this worldly way, uh, and even the heavenly Jerusalem that that is rooted in that city on planet Earth, and third. You know, I think the third thing that that we can say eschatologically is that not all the signs of the end have been played out yet. Now, most supersessionists say everything is done, Christ has fulfilled all the promises. You know, the finished work of Christ. Well, uh, I don't think so. You know, Peter didn't think so. In, 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 in Peter's second speech in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter. Um, uh, b- 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 four, no three. You know, Peter. You know, Peter talks about the 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 the, the apokatastasis that is still to come. Now that's the word that's used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the early church's um, version of the Old Testament, their Bible. That's the word that's always used by the prophets for the future. Uh, worldwide coming back to the land of the Jewish people. And Peter said it hasn't come yet. It's still to come. Now, you know, Peter is speaking after the death and resurrection and, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. There's still something yet to come. Christ's work was finished, but that doesn't mean all the biblical prophecies have been fulfilled yet. So we know from second Thessalonians, two, as I just said that paul's, paul's prophecy that 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 the antichrist uh, the man of lawlessness, will set himself up in the temple and proclaim himself to proclaim himself to be God that has not happened yet, I would argue so so, there are still things yet to come.
0: How do we understand as we you know as we kind of come to a to a conclusion here uh, the modern state of Israel? I mean, that's a big question, right? The, the establishment of Israel, how is that a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? How should we, cause that's a big part of dispensationalism. Yeah. And uh, what role should that play in this kind of new Christian Zionist perspective?
1: Well, I would say it is a, the uh, return of the Jews to the land in spectacular numbers the last three centuries, and particularly the last 150 years, is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, um, we know from the 20th century and from the rising anti-Semitism today all over the world that the Jews need a state to protect the, the, the covenant people. And without it, they might be destroyed again, as they were almost destroyed in the 20th century and the last century. Um, now, it, there's no guarantee that this is the last Jewish state. You know, the world could continue for another few centuries, for all we know. The, the Jewish state today of Israel is certainly not perfect. It has its faults. But I think we should also say, this is the only place in the Middle East right now. we have to say it now. Now here's another fact. The state of Israel, the Jewish state of Israel is the only place in the Middle East where Muslims can have full religious freedom to practice their faith. Yeah, Sunnis and Shiites and Sufis without being hunted down and killed. Now that's not the case on the West Bank or in Gaza for for Arabs, for for Muslims who live there and particularly for Christians. And it's the only place in the Middle East where Palestinians have full civil rights. Palestinians do not have full civil rights uh, living under their own government on the West Bank and living under their own government in Gaza. Only in 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 Israel proper, in the Jewish state, do Palestinians have full civil and legal rights. So I think those are the things that we can say about the Jewish state today.
0: Are there any uh, things that still puzzle you about and uh, your years of studying Israel and the church? Are there any questions that still, if you get to heaven, you'd love to get answered about? Uh, in the scriptures regarding this?
1: Oh, there are so many. Uh, you know, the scriptures are an ocean. As the great biblical scholar um, and theologian named Origen wrote, he was also mistaken about many things, uh, including Israel, the relationship between Israel and the church. But because it's an ocean, I mean, there's so many questions, you know, it's a book, you know, the Bible is a book of of many, many mysteries. Paul Mm -hmm. uses the word uh, mystery often. And one of them to me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one that I'm looking forward to getting cleared up, is how and when God reveals his son to those Jews whom scripture says... God has closed their eyes to the identity of the Jewish Messiah. Partial hardening, Paul calls it, that has come upon Israel, which is still in place today for the majority of Jews. Now, I believe God is a just God. And I believe that for many, many Jews who love the God of Israel and give their heart and soul to the God of Israel, but haven't seen yet that Jesus is the Messiah, I believe they will see it. And I that's one thing I'm looking forward to finding out. How and when does God reveal that to them? Now, I'm not saying, I don't believe in a dual covenant. I'm not saying that all Jews will be saved simply by virtue of being uh, Jews. Paul, Paul um, clearly denies that in Romans 9 through
0: 11. This was a fascinating discussion. I mean, I, I, I have so many more questions now from this, but... Uh but also I think this is just really helpful and i want to makes me want to go back and reread a lot of those passages we came across um, because it is very challenging stuff. But like you said, it's an ocean. It's it's something that we need to study and to think more about. And I appreciate your time and you explaining this and uh, we'll make sure to put links to some of your articles and books so people could check that out. And uh, you know, and, You
1: know, Brian, you're you're a great pastor and preacher. May I recommend something to you and to all your listeners who who preach or just want to learn? Uh, I recommend you uh, spend a little bit of money. It's not much. And go to Amazon to the Jewish New Testament commentary by David Stern. It's called the Jewish New Testament commentary. The author is David Stern, a great Messianic Jew, brilliant man who died in Jerusalem just last year, the Jewish New Testament commentary, it's probably about a thousand pages. And you'll find some, some, uh, some approaches to all these passages we've been talking about and many, many more that I guarantee you, you and your listeners will never have seen before.
0: Awesome. David, you said it was, what was the name of the author again? David Stern, David S-T-E-R-N. Okay, we can put a link to that as well, and I'm excited to to dive into that. Thank you so much, Dr. McDermott. Appreciate the time, appreciate your work, and uh, I think people are going to really enjoy listening to this. If you guys are listeners, thank you for listening, and uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in, and uh, we'll have more episodes, more interviews as well, but make sure you follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast, and share this with your friends get more of this conversation started and uh, appreciate you guys tuning in with us today.